ever heard the phrase that you're, you are your own worst enemy? Um, some of you have heard it, but you've never recognized that to be true in your life. And some of you know it all too well, uh, that, that you and uh, maybe your history or your habits um, are your own worst enemy. Uh, we're going to see that come true in the life of two individuals today as we continue our study in the book of Judges. Now, the study in the book of Judges is a study of a group of stories that are uh, roughly 3,000 years old. Um, If you want to follow along with us and these stories, uh, you can scan this QR code and follow along in the Bible app. If you don't have that app on your phone, by scanning this QR code, it'll just open up our event in a web browser. And in addition to seeing all the scriptures we're going to read this morning, uh, there are also links to things like our connection card. If you're a guest, we'd love to know more about you. There's a link to our prayer request form. If you would like to share a prayer request that our prayer team could be praying for, you can do it there. And then there's also a link to our giving page. If you want to give towards missions or uh, to the general fund, you can do that through this QR code. As well. Uh, But this story that is 3,000 years old may seem very distant. There are certainly a lot of differences in cultural uh, practices and and worldly norms. The reality is, these are people just like us who have certain struggles just like us and who sometimes get in their own way just like us. And so we are going to be, continue our journey by beginning in Judges chapter 6. And so at this point, if you haven't been with us, we have already gone through the first five chapters of Judges, looking at these initial cycles of the way in which uh, God is interacting with his people. And the way this story begins for uh, this judge in chapter six, it begins like this, which is how almost all of them begin. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So if you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, uh, here's what we've seen, is that we are in this just cyclical pattern where the people of Israel rebel against God. They do what is evil in the sight of God. And so when God gets angry because of their evil, wicked ways, he removes his protection on the people. He's no longer going to protect the people from their surrounding enemies, uh, from the surrounding nations. And so when God removes his protection, these foreign armies and rulers and kings move in and start oppressing the people. The people are upset. They don't like being oppressed, so they cry out to God. And in response, God sends a judge. Um, Now, don't think of judge as in a modern day judge. It might be even better to call them a deliverer. God sends a deliverer to bring salvation and rescue to the Israelite people. uh, This ruler or judge or deliverer uh, ushers in a season of peace. Everyone lives in peace. And unfortunately, the people get complacent. And they go back to doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And we start the cycle all over again. And so we get this phrase, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so now we know we have started the cycle over again. We are already multiple uh, versions of this cycle by the time we get to chapter six. 
And so uh, what we see is this time we get details about what that oppression looks like. We're not going to read all those details this morning, but we can say that this is the worst the Israelites have had it to date. And then here's what God does. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, this foreign nation who had come to oppress them. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Again, we're in this same pattern in the cycle. It happens every time. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now, normally when the people cry out, God sends a judge, a judge to come lead them in battle, a judge to come fight against their enemies, a judge to, br to bring rescue and deliverance and salvation. But this time God breaks from his pattern and instead sends a prophet. This time God sends a sermon before he sends salvation. And here's what this prophet says. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so when this prophet comes through him, God reminds the people of what he has done how he has been faithful and he reminds the people of what they have done, how they have been unfaithful. And here's really the message we get, both in God sending a prophet instead of a judge and also the picture that we get through the words of the prophet is that the problem here is when the people of Israel cried out to God, their real motivation was regret, not repentance. Really what was driving them to cry out to God was regret, not repentance. We're reading this story in the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar, the Old Testament is, is the half of your Bible that is a preparation and lead up to Jesus. It's, it's designed to show us how bad we are as humans and how much we are in need of a true savior. We've called this series in Judges, Broken Saviors, because every human leader in this book, although they do some good things, they're all flawed. All human leaders are flawed. All human leaders are broken. None of us are good enough to be someone else's savior or even our own savior. And in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible that was written in response to the life of Jesus, look at what one leader in 2 Corinthians says, carrying on this idea of regret and repentance. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So let's talk for just a minute about the difference between regret and repentance. Regret is about hating the consequences of sin. 
Repentance is about hating sin itself. When we're full of regret, it's because we don't like the consequences we're now suffering because of our sin. When we're full of repentance, it's because we've become heartbroken over the sin itself. Regret drags us down, whereas repentance lifts us up. Regret drags us down because in regret, we're so focused on what we're suffering. We're so focused on what we've lost and we'll never get back. We're so focused on our past and how it will always be a part of us, but in repentance, we're lifted up. Because in repentance, we realize that the most precious thing we lose in the midst of sin is that whole right relationship with the Lord and repentance restores that relationship. And so in repentance, we're lifted up because we recognize that what matters most has been restored. No matter what consequences may follow us in life, what matters most has been renewed. Regret is all about me. It's all about me. But repentance is all about the Lord. Regret is all about what I've lost, what I've suffered, what I have to deal with. Repentance is about the heartbreak we've caused God for our rebellion. Repentance looks to him. Regret is about looking at ourselves. And so what we see in the people of Israel is that it turns out their crying out to the Lord wasn't really about repentance. It was about regret. They weren't sorry for what they had done. They were sorry because of what they had done and the consequences that came with it. They were regretful because they had to deal with these foreign armies. They weren't repentant because they had rebelled against God. And so before God is gonna send a judge this time, he first sends a prophet to help remind the people of what's really important. And then God does send a judge and his name is Gideon. Now, some of you are familiar with the story of Gideon. We're gonna summarize his story today. We'll look at a few passages, but we're gonna summarize it. One, because it's long. And two, because it wasn't that long ago that we actually preached on Gideon's story. Not long ago, we did a series called Hall of Faith in which we took several weeks walking through Hebrews chapter 11, which is sort of like a hall of fame of people of faith from the Old Testament. And we talked about Gideon's story in that message series. If you would like to hear more specifics on Gideon's story, you can go back to our website. All of our old sermons are there and you can search for the series Hall of Faith and look at that message where we talk more specifically about Gideon. But God raises up Gideon to be this judge or deliverer. And so Gideon leads the Israelite army right up to the front lines of battle. They set up camp and it's time to go to war. But they're nervous because the Midianites have more than 120,000 soldiers and Israel just has 32,000. So what do they need? Well, Humanly speaking, they need more soldiers. Spiritually speaking, what they need is they need God on their side. 
And so that God would alone would be the one to get the glory for what was about to happen, he goes to Gideon, he says, I want you to perform a couple tests because we need to get rid of some of this army. So he says, I want you to go and ask your army, anyone who's scared, tell them to stay in their tent. And 22,000 soldiers went back to their tents. Gideon's army of 32,000 was just cut down to 10,000. God said, that's still too many. So he said, I want you to perform another test because we're gonna decide who is really going to go into battle. So Gideon follows the instructions of the Lord. And at the end of the day, he's left with 300 soldiers. 32,000 to 300. 300 versus more than 120,000 enemy soldiers. God's specialty is using us in our limitations and our weaknesses. Because when God uses us in our weaknesses, he is the only one who gets the credit and the glory. So he tells Gideon, you're gonna take these 300 soldiers and I will give you this foreign nation this foreign army into your hands. So Gideon, along with the inspiration of God, devises a plan. He takes these 300 soldiers and he divides them up into three groups. In the middle of the night, they surround the enemy encampment and every one of his soldiers has a trumpet and a torch. Gideon says, on my signal, everyone light your torch and blow your trumpet as loud as you can. And so in the middle of the night, during one of the changing of the guards in the enemy encampment, all the Israelites surrounding this encampment light their torches and blow their trumpets, suddenly awaking everyone in camp. Everyone knows what those trumpets mean. It means the battle started. So all these Midianite soldiers grab their swords and run out of their tents, expecting to see Israel and their army attacking them. But in the chaos that is ensuing, in the pitch blackness of night, and all they can see is just torches surrounding their encampment. And because it happened right during the middle of the, the exchange, during the, the, cha the, the changing of the, the watch, all of a sudden they run out of their tents and there are armed individuals walking throughout the encampment. And in the chaos, they turn their swords on one another. And nearly 120,000 enemy soldiers are killed that night. Gideon and his army didn't touch one of them. Now, if the story ended here, this would be the first positive story in the book of Judges. Wouldn't it be great if we could be like, the end, it's the victory of the original 300. Let's pray and go home. Unfortunately, as we've seen in the book of Judges, these people and these leaders are flawed. And that's sort of the point of the book of Judges is to remind us that no human can be a real savior. We need a divine savior. That any human savior will be a broken savior. And so while Gideon has a great moment here, it gets very dark next. So after the chaos, there are two particular um, Midianite leaders and some of their soldiers that do manage to escape. And so Gideon takes his army and pursues after them. 
Gideon goes to one of his local Israelite towns. I mean, these are his fellow kinsmen. And he says, hey, would you please help us? Would you give some of my soldiers some bread? We need some revival before we go and we finish off this army. And this city said, no. They said, until, like, we're not, we're not gonna help you. What happens if you're not successful in battle? And the foreign, the Midianites come back. They'll know we helped you and we'll be in trouble. So Gideon says, fine, don't help me, but you'll pay for it later. He goes to the next town and he says, hey, will you help us? Will you give us some food? We need some nourishment before we finish this thing off. And they said, no, no, we won't help you. So Gideon, without the help of his fellow brothers and some of these cities within his own nation, he goes, he finishes what God had started. And he comes back and You know, it turns out that while God was supposed to get all the glory from the victory, I mean, 300 soldiers defeating 120,000 and the 300 don't even have to use their swords. Gideon was upset that no one was giving him his due. No one was giving him the honor he thought he deserved. No one was giving him the credit and the praise and the glory he thought he had earned, despite the fact all he did was blow a trumpet. So after finishing off the Midian army, he comes back. And in the first city that refused to help him, he takes briars and thorn bushes. And the Bible says, quote, he taught the men a lesson. And it gets worse because then he goes to the next town. These are his own people, mind you. His own people. And he kills all the men of the city. because they wouldn't give him what he thought he deserved. So then we pick up the story in chapter eight. As you can imagine how everyone felt after these events, probably pretty scared of Gideon, knowing how vengeful he could be. Look at what happens in verse 22 and 23 of chapter eight. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon says the right thing. Because that's how it was always designed to be. That's why Israel didn't have a king. God was supposed to be their king. So Gideon says the right thing. But what we realize is that what Gideon knew to be true in his head never really made it to his heart. And here's how we know that. Because the next thing he does is he asks the people, instead of making him king, to give him an offering of gold. And so they do. This is what we're told that he does with it. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Orpha, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So an ephod was a chest plate. And it was a chest plate that only the high priest in the tabernacle was allowed to wear. So Gideon, by making his own copy, essentially set up his own hometown as a rival place of worship. 
He wants to encourage the people to come to him for guidance and to see his home as the place where God can be found. Gideon has used God to consolidate his own position instead of using his position to serve and to be used by God. Gideon said the right thing. No, 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 no. I won't be your king because God's supposed to be your king. But what he does is he sets himself up to be the chief ruler and for the entire nation to have to come to him for what they need. And it gets worse. Verses 29 and 31. As I told you, the quote, heroes in this book are broken people. So we're not gonna go into the backstory, but Jerubal is a nickname for Gideon. So this is Gideon. Jerubal or Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Doesn't sound like a guy who's trying to give honor and glory to God. It sounds like a guy who wants it all for himself. And his concubine, which is a non-wife, very near to a sex slave, and his concubine, who is in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. In Hebrew, the name Abimelech literally means, my father is king. So Gideon said he wasn't king in title, but everything he did acted like it, even to the point of naming one of his own children, my father is king. These are dark days in the history of Israel. Gideon demands that he be given honor and praise and glory for winning the, the battle despite doing nothing, but, trusting, but following God's orders and blowing a trumpet. Gideon refuses to become king in title, yet acts exactly like you would expect a corrupt king to act. Gideon uses his position to bring worship to himself rather than foster worship of God. Oftentimes the most dangerous things in our lives can be success. In failure, we're reminded of our own weakness and inability. In failure, we're reminded of the idols in our lives and how they can never save us. Success, however, can give us the illusion that we can save ourselves. Success often turns our hearts away from God's grace and mercy onto what we can do. Success often establishes a new idol in our lives, the idol of me. Gideon has set the stage for one of the worst moments in the history of Israel. Gideon has set the stage for taking what doesn't belong to you. And his son Abimelech is going to follow in his father's footsteps. Abimelech was an illegitimate son of Gideon. He was a son of his concubine, not one of his wives, which means Abimelech had no right to inherit anything that was Gideon's. And Abimelech wanted to take what didn't belong to him, just like his father. So the only way Abimelech could take what he wanted was to make sure that he got rid of his 70 legitimate brothers. We're told that uh, Abimelech's mother lived in Shechem, if you remember from this verse. Shechem was a very significant place in the history of Israel. 
Shechem is where Abraham is first given the promise by God that all the land he is in will one day be given to his descendants. And so Abraham sets up an altar and worships the Lord there. That makes Shechem the very first place that Yahweh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord was worshiped <clears throat> in the promised land. Shechem is also the place that all of Israel gathered to worship for the first time when they entered into the promised land and after the fall of Jericho. This is a special place, which makes what happens next especially painful. This would be the equivalent of the United States reinstituting slavery at Gettysburg or reinstituting racial segregation in Montgomery, Alabama. This should have been a place of honor, but it's going to become a place of shame. All the other judges in the book um, are called by God. Abimelech is the only one who takes it upon himself. Knowing that he's an illegitimate son of Gideon, he recognizes that he's got one way to get what he wants, and that's to get rid of his brothers. So um, Abimelech gathers the people of Shechem and he says, hey, wouldn't it be better if you had one king from your own people group? Because even though Abimelech was an illegitimate son, this is his people group. He said, wouldn't it be better to have one king from your own people group than to have 70 kings that they don't represent you? People of Shechem were like, yeah, that would be better. So he told them to go into one of their pagan temples the fact that they even had the pagan temple is part of the reason God was punishing them. They go into one of the pagan temples and pull out gold and precious things. They give it to Abimelech. He uses it to hire mercenaries to come and follow him. Abimelech goes and then murders 69 of his 70 brothers. But the people of Shechem, just as fast as they decided to follow and raise Abimelech up, decided to go with someone else. Someone else new moves into town and says, well, why should Abimelech be king? What about me? And the people of Shechem are like, okay. So Abimelech returns with his mercenaries and he's gonna get revenge on the people of Shechem, his own people for their betrayal. He attacks their city and kills most of them. And those that he doesn't kill, they flee to that pagan temple that they have and they all hide inside one of the towers. And with everyone inside, Abimelech burns it down. Abimelech then goes to another town to do the exact same thing. And in the process of killing a lot of people in that town, he himself gets killed in a shameful and embarrassing way. This is an ugly story. In Judges chapter 8 through 834 through 106, God is not mentioned by name one time. Because this is no longer about serving and honoring and praising and worshiping God. This is about serving and honoring and praising and worshiping ourselves. This is what happens when we decide to make ourselves God. And then this is sort of how this terrible story closes. Judges 10, one through two, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, 
Listen, if you're looking for some like baby name recommendations, Judges is probably not the place to look. A man of Issachar and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years and then he died and was buried at Shamir. Here's what's interesting. Up to this point, every judge we're introduced to saves Israel from a foreign army. We're told about some foreign army who has come to oppress them and fight against them. But here we have this new judge, Tola, who comes to save Israel. But the question is, from who? It's to save Israel from herself. For many of us, what is a great temptation is probably not the worship of other gods. The great temptation we have is probably to not engage in pagan worship practices. The greatest danger to many of us is ourselves. Because rather than worshiping the Lord, we want to make ourselves God in our own lives. We want the honor. We want the glory. We want the praise the greatest idol in most of our lives is the person we look at in the mirror. And eventually God had to send a judge to save the nation of Israel from itself. This is the gospel, that Jesus came to save us, not only from the consequences of sin, but our slavery to sin and to save us from ourselves. I know these stories are often strange and they're 3,000 years old. While the time and places have changed, the reality is the human heart has not. And what many of us need is to be saved from ourselves, because we can never be our own savior. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, most of us know the right answer in our minds, (laughs) much like Gideon. He knew what to say. He knew what the right answer was. It just wasn't a reality in his heart. I fear most of us go about life knowing the right answer in our heads, but that knowledge never makes its way to our heart. We know your God Jesus, we know you are the true savior, but in our heart of hearts, most of us act like we can be our own savior. Lord, would you convict us and lead us not to regret, but to repentance. To not just be regretful for the consequences of our sin, but to be repentant of sin of the greatest sin, idolatry, of making someone or something more important than you. And most of the time that's us. We make ourselves more important than you. So Lord, right now, we confess our idolatry. Would you forgive us that we have tried to bring praise to ourselves and not to you? And Lord, in this moment, as we do sing to you, would you help us? Would you take that knowledge from our heads and bury it deep in our hearts? 
You and you alone are worthy of praise. You and you alone are worthy of honor and glory and worship. Would you make that a reality in our lives, in our hearts this morning? Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, we submit to you. Lord Jesus, would you do a work in our minds and our hearts?